Friends, welcome back to the podcast. It is always good to be with you, and um, I'm really excited to introduce you to our guest today, Steve Weens. Uh, Before we get to that, I just wanted to first thank those of you who have been uh, supporting my work. I'm so grateful for you. You've been helping me to connect with churches, to connect with pastors, to especially in the post-evangelical space. We're just seeing some really neat things happening there. And in fact, if you're a pastor or a leader in a church and in that space, I would love to invite you to a gathering that we are putting together in October in South Bend, Indiana, where we're just going to get together and have some roundtable conversations. It's an opportunity if you are a pastor in this space. And here, I want to I want to sort of like uh, give you a little bit of language that uh, a group of us had kind of worked on to to try and make sense of this space instead of defining ourselves by what we're not trying to define ourselves by like here is who we are and what kind of fits there and so here's 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 some of the ways that some of us have kind of defined this space so we've said that while evangelicalism or other more conservative streams are the theological and cultural t- tradition that have formed many of us And while we're grateful for the gifts that we've received from that lineage, we find its boundaries too narrow for our experience of God and its politics corrupted by an unchrist-like vision. Oh, that one gets me every time. He said, we seek a more just and inclusive expression of faith, but we reject the temptation to trade one exclusionary stance for another in the effort to address the need for justice and inclusion. We aren't just trying to be a group of people who shift from conservative fundamentalism to progressive fundamentalism. Um, We believe in the importance of deconstruction, but we also believe in rebuilding faith as followers of Jesus, and we're excited about inviting others into this way of life. We see the Spirit moving through new ideas and theological visions, but we also embrace the depth and the breadth of the historical church. And so that, that friends, is some of the language that has been um, kind of popping up around this space. And so if you're a pastor or leader and you resonate with that, in fact, I think you will, first of all, you're going to resonate with Steve here as he shares some of uh, some about his church, as he shares some about uh, a book that he wrote last year about, uh, it, I just think you're going to resonate with him a lot. But if you resonate with those things as well, I would love for you to join us in October. I'm going to put a link to the gathering in the show notes, and we have made it free to try and just make it as pos- as easy as possible for as many of you to come, uh, to lower the bar on it, being able to be there and to bring somebody with you, to bring somebody from your team or your spouse, one of your elders, somebody who like you're journeying with in your church. Uh, we would love for this to be a space where you can connect with others to know that you're not alone, where you can like bounce ideas off each other, share resources, and also a space for you to breathe and to be cared for. And um, we've invited uh, Britt Barron and Scott Erickson to come and just sort of be spiritual guides to create some space for the spirit to to renew you and restore you after what has been an incredibly difficult season this past year. And so, um, yeah, friends, pastors, uh, leaders, I would love to have you join us. So that'll be in the show notes. We're going to get now uh, into this interview with Steve Weens. All right, friends. Well, welcome back to the podcast. It is good to have you with us. And um, we have with us a new friend today named Steve Weens. And Steve, you are out in, uh, you're in Minneapolis. Is that right? Yes, Minnesota. 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 <laughs> I did I did my grad work out there. Did I tell you that? I don't know no. if I did. I was out at um, Bethel and I was doing yeah. a, a program, a cohort program. So I go out there for two weeks at a time. Yep. yep. And um, only once had to be there in the winter. And I very nervously drove on the ice just to say that I did it one time. Yeah, it was- man. It's, it's legit. Now, what people don't really understand is that it's just – you know, it's really a few days of the year that it's like that. You know, if you have an ice storm, it's not. I mean, they they do such a good job of clearing the roads. But when it is icy, even people who live here, you know, get a little funky and certain people get more <laughs> a little yeah, too yeah. confident, you know, and then they're on they're in the ditch, which is a word that I didn't even know until I moved to Minnesota. I'm like in the ditch. What do you mean? <laughs> Side of the road. You know, they're, they're peeled out. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so you're pastoring a church out there. You, yep. um, I liked, I like the bio that you have on your website. You said you're a spiritual teacher, writer, and pastor who loves helping people reconstruct their faith after their theological foundations have crumbled. Yeah. Um, one, like you are really good with words. Um, but I love that picture of reconstructing faith after your theological foundations have crumbled. And I want to ask you a bit about that. I've got like 47 things that I want to talk to you awesome. about. Awesome. Um, I have nothing but time. I can't wait. Oh, good. Well, because before we get into all that, I want to start with with um, a really awkward way to start our interview. So I first read your book a year ago, your newest book. You got three books out. So Shining Like the Sun came out a year ago during the pandemic, which was a sucky time to launch a book. Um, oh, yeah. But um, I, I think that I've expressed this to you in some sort of way, but like it was at the exact right time for me. Like I needed that book during the pandemic. And it was really, it was honestly one of the more significant books that I read last year. Thank you. And when I read it, I reached out to you and sent you a note and we corresponded a little bit. And I feel like over the last year, I've been trying really hard to be your best friend. And I feel like <laughs> you're trying really hard to not be friends with me. So, so can we talk a little bit about like why yeah. you don't want to be my friend? Yep, Mike. Let's, so first of all, uh, every person I've talked to lately will be like, how do you know Mike Goldsworthy? Every single person. Kevin Butcher, <laughs> Rob Fairbanks. I just talked to him yesterday or two days ago. Uh, of course, our mutual friend Steve Carter. So number one, I should be trying to get to be best friends with you. <laughs> let's I mean, I let's feel be like honest that's, that's about true. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you know, I do remember back in the day because we had something scheduled and then I I uh, broke it off. I When we were talking originally – uh, I just was in a bit of a dark place and I was in a place where I just had to, I had to, and I'm a three on the Enneagram, so it's hard for me to do this, but I had to cancel everything that wasn't, you know, quote unquote essential. And yeah. now, of course, now I looking back, talking to you during that time would have been very healing for me, for my soul, I'm sure. But I just was in a place. I, I can't even remember when that was exactly. It was, maybe it was summer or fall, but I was not in a good spot. Um, so Okay, like you turned me being a bit of a jackass here into like something really nice. <laughs> that's nice of you. That's that's why we need to be friends. I love the awkward start. We're going to start this a little bit awkwardly. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. No, but I and thank you for those kind words, you know, um, because I do I do feel like it the book Shining Like the Sun dropped into the abyss. And it did, you know, it just did. No one that released a book during that time, or at least that's what we like to say. That's what, that's, that's what those of us that, um, like Colby Martin and, you know, he released the book right about that. And we've sort of commiserated yeah. uh, with each other. So, but we, we blame the poor sales, or at least I blame my poor sales on the pandemic. Of course, it's certainly not the writing, you know, certainly. Not oh yeah. Book. Well, we have another mutual friend. I won't say his name on here. Um, but he he blamed he blamed he dropped a book during the pandemic also and he blamed his sales on both the pandemic and um somebody else dropped a book at the same time and he's like they got way more that like <laughs> their their publisher got way more behind them than than mine did and <laughs> oh my gosh I mean, authors we are we are especially authors that are threes we're just deluded and, and so thank God for our you know our um um, our ability to blame others for <laughs> our own faults. That's so great. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. Let, let's get into stuff that like folks would want to hear about. Cause I don't think they want to hear about um, us having an awkward uh, relationship. So maybe. maybe uh, your book. So part of why I wanted to chat with you, cause I think that like your book has an evergreen quality to it. Like it definitely was really significant for me a year ago. But my hope is, um, like having you on here, the tens of listeners that we have, like hopefully we can like regenerate some, some interest in it because I think it's really significant, and I think it's really um, a significant um, work for for where a lot of people are at in their faith right now. Like we're seeing this like cottage industry for like around deconstruction popping up right now, right? And we could probably like that's one of the things I want to push in about is like what's happening there 
and even that kind of language that's being used. Because I like the way that you talk about reconstructing your faith after your theological foundations have crumbled. Yep. Um, what I found interesting about your book, the so Shining Like the Sun, the the um, subtitle is Seven Mindful Practices for Rekindling Your Faith. And one of the things that I thought was fascinating is the idea of rekindling your faith, not around um, reconstructing just the way that you think about faith, but around like actual practices. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about like the difference between that? Like why, why, like, is that kind of what you are pushing us into? Yeah, I think so. You know, first of all, I think the, the idea of those of us whose foundations have crumbled. So we're, we're going to use a couple different metaphors. So the metaphor of foundation and the metaphor of fire, you know, interchangeably a little bit with rekindling your faith and crumbling foundations. But I just have come to believe firmly that God, if God is mystery, then as Richard Rohr says, that means God is endlessly knowable, not mm-hmm. unknowable. And so it's completely normal and natural for us to have a framework of faith that works for a while. And it will work for us until it doesn't work. And the work of of deconstructing and reconstructing, in my mind, is simply paying attention to when your box for God, which you have built, that's the only way for us to know God is by building a box for God. <laughs> that's the only way. It's okay. It's fine. It's actually good. But the work of um, of deconstructing and reconstructing is like akin to walking around an earthquake site after the foundation is cracked even, and you go, Oh my goodness. Now I need to, I need to really get down to the beginning again. And I need to, I need to find a framework that works for me. But, and this is where it comes into practices is that, you know, we really can't think our way into new ways of believing many people have said that but the reason why is because our 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 mind is endlessly dualistic i mean our brains want to judge things as good or bad safe yeah, or yeah. dangerous you know and so we actually can't we we actually can't think our way using our brains and our minds we have to engage with our bodies and nature in an embodied mindful way so that we actually are um, t- taming in a sense our monkey minds so that we can find these new and more expansive ways of believing and thinking and practicing. So that's what I'm trying to do is not, is really not, you know, get cerebral, uh, but, but really help people into new mindful practices. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I appreciate about you is that it's not out of a lack of um, thoughtfulness that you do that. It's not like an excuse to not be thoughtful or an excuse to not think like you're obviously incredibly thoughtful. Um, you're obviously like well studied. It it feels like what you are leading us to is a um, experience of you've you've built the sort of box of your understanding of God and then that boxes begin to crumble and that there is a um, experience on the other side of that that isn't a negation of thoughtfulness, and it's right. not a negation of like whatever. That it's not that you haven't critically engaged with the text. It's not that you haven't asked those sorts of questions. But that, but that there's a kind of experience of God on the other side that um, is bigger than that. It, like right, like that. It's more than more than just being able to uh, critically engage the text. Yeah, I, that's a good. Thank you for pointing that out. It's a good distinction. I would say it's a both and. We definitely have to critically engage the ways in which we have looked at the Bible and looked at our own social construct, aka our denomination or our religious upbringing, uh, and you know, name the faultiness of it, and 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 name the ways in which our thinking has been limited or not as expansive. We we have to do that work. I think where practice then comes in is it's really easy to leave one form of thinking, and but without mindful practices like the the practices in my book, attentiveness, delight, conversation we can 
just change uniforms and keep playing by the same judgmental rules and mm-hmm. think that we're, you know, we've all met the, 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 the progressive person that is just as fundamentalist as she used to be when she was playing for the other team. <laughs> she just now has, has different things that she wants to, to scream about, you know? And so mindful practices help us to both take ourselves more seriously and less seriously. I think. Yeah. So as you're pastoring and engaging with folks who are going through that sort of a process, have you, you you lay out seven different practices, but have you noticed that there's a couple of those that seem to be more significant for folks to engage in as a, as a part of that, that's like almost um, a healthy, helpful sort of first steps? Yes. Uh, Simplicity is one of the practices uh, that people at our church and and these I don't write about this in the book. I don't write about my church in the book, partly because I wanted to make this book as accessible as possible to people who weren't Christians or weren't in the church. But these are the seven values of our church. Like hmm. th- these are th- this is what we've you know been doing since day one. And simplicity is the one that people talk about the most, and that's essentially noticing when we're making our thinking or our practicing too complex, (laughs) you know, and noticing when we, we are yearning to say yes to more expansive things and recognizing that because we're limited human beings, if we want to say yes to certain new things, we then have to say no to certain other things. And so I would say simplicity is a really important, even foundational uh, practice to start with. And so in the book, I sort of lead people through a way to write your simplicity statement, what it is that you're going to give uh, your unambiguous yes to, and also what it is that you're going to give your, you know, your, your real serious no to. And that's harder than, than we think it is, right, Mike? I mean, like, we can say, oh, we want to start this new, whatever it is, this new exercise plan or reading plan. But if we don't have a corresponding set of things that we're no longer going to do, then that's, we're just adding complexity and it doesn't help. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the things that like took me aback actually on your writing on simplicity was it didn't feel like it was about like just abandoning my stuff. Right. It felt like it was about a reframing of thinking. And I think if I remember it, you talk about like simplicity about essentially like practicing your limits. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which was such a helpful sort of framework, which you were doing when you didn't want to be friends with me that you're like, <laughs> I've, I've got. <laughs> oh, the, the wasted year, the wasted year that we had, Mike, we, we could have what, what could have been, I mean, someday we're going to be old intimacy. sitting around the fire. talking about the wasted year, the wasted year. Um, one of the other things you introduced me to in this book that I'm so grateful for is like, I had read bits and pieces of Meister Eckhart, Mm. um, only like, like in your book, like people quoting him, but you rely on that so much that I ended up picking up the book that you, you referenced quite a bit in there. Um, I think it's called Meister Eckhart's book of the heart. Yes. Um, where some, some folks take a couple of guys, right? Take his, take Meister Eckhart's writing and kind of turn it into poetry. Yes. Um, and it's so beautiful, but do you mind talking a little bit about like, what, what is it that's attracted you to Eckhart and, um, and sort of like the, the mystical teachings that, that he offers? Well, first of all, yeah, the book that of the book of poetry, there's a couple of volumes out, but it's by two guys, John Sweeney, he's a friend, and Mark Burroughs. Um, and they both translate Meister Eckhart's work from the German. But Meister Eckhart wasn't a poet. He was a theologian. And what they do is take his incredibly dense teachings. They're so helpful, but they're so dense. And they transform his teaching into Rumi or Hafiz-like poetry hmm. that captures and the essential gift of Meister Eckhart, who lived think in the, in the 16th century um, uh, was his understanding of non-dualism, you know? So he was way ahead of his time 
Um, so he would say things like, you know, he would use a phrase like, and this is translated, but you know, the pathless path to God, that if you think, you know, the, the path to God, it will not be God that you find. It will be something else, you know, but if you abandon, if you have a path to God that is pathless, (laughs) then you, you will arrive where you need to be. And so he, he, he's all about paradox, which, I, I had a helpful, um, when I was writing about paradoxes, like, you know, it's such a juicy word. It's so beautiful. Like you sound so smart when you say paradox, you know, <laughs> but I, I finally had to say like, okay, I really have to understand what, what paradox is and, and why it's used as a teaching tool. And I found this description so helpful. Paradox is like when you are driving down the road and you come to a T in, in the road and you don't know where to go. Right, right or left, or go right or left. Paradox allows you to sit there in the not knowing for long enough to where you break yourself out of your normal way of acting and thinking, huh. or typical way of acting and thinking. So you're you're actually like, or you're to use another metaphor. If you're on a train track, you've been knocked off of the train track, and now you have to figure out: Do I want to get back on the track? Do I want to stay on the train? Do I want to switch ways of traveling? Maybe I want to walk now. But when you're just on the train track, then you're just on the train track. So paradox allows you to come to that T in the road and abandon or change your way of thinking, believing, and um, and being so that you can arrive at a different destination, the one that you really are looking for. I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, is that almost the idea of like you come to that fork in the road and you think you've got to go left or you've got to go right. And it's just, no, you're just going to, you're going to sit here in that space and it might not even be that you need to go forward. No, you might go back. You might, again, you might stop walking and start riding a horse. You might, some other companion on the road may join you and lead you. You just don't, the point is you, you don't, you don't know until you are invited i was going to say forced but it's usually not that strong until you are invited yeah. and until you receive the invitation to stop just business as usual you know that's what paradox allows us to do and so that's when you when you think about the teachings of jesus and the and the use of parables and everything like that he's using he is using paradox almost exclusively to um help people out of status quo way of thinking. Huh. Uh, give, and, give me an example magical. of that. Well, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan is is maybe yes. the best one, but it's like, you know, we've we've translated that into like a moral lesson that we all should be nice, you know? We all okay. should just 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 be just do the right thing. But really when Jesus, so the, you know, quickly it's the, the, these, this guy is beaten by the side of the road and these two religious leaders pass right by him, but then a Samaritan helps him. And, and then the whole, the whole parable is taught to one person, a religious leader. And, and the, the question that Jesus asks the religious leader at the end, which of these three men was a neighbor to the to the person that was beaten by the side of the road. We we go so quickly that 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 we miss the paradox that the religious leader is invited into is that which of these three men? Well, he sees the first two men as men as equals, but he doesn't see the Samaritan huh. as as yeah, an equal. Yeah, so yeah, just yeah. like that, that mind bomb right there. Which of these three men? Which of these three equals? So now it's 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 about how he sees the Samaritan, and not it's not a moral lesson about doing the right thing. It's about how we see people and are we willing to mm. see the people that we now think of someone that you or a type of person that you look down on. I mean, it might be a political, a person of, of a political party or, you know, a type of person that you think doesn't get it. And that, which of these three people, like, can you, can you see, can you sit in paradox long enough to know that you are actually blind to the, the spirit of God that resides within that person? And that doesn't, doesn't dismiss, you know, them from any, thing that they are missing either, you know, um, 
But that's, I think that's one example of many. Yeah, that's so good. And isn't it, isn't it in that story also where um, when he responds to Jesus, he says the one who he doesn't even like name him. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. It, like he can't even bring himself. Yeah. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He No, no. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. So um, I want to, you, you talked about the pathless path that yeah. Eckhart talks about. Yeah. And you quoted, you quoted Eckhart. I wrote this quote down. Ours is the task of learning to seek God without a way and without a why, meaning to open ourselves to the surprising and often unsettling adventure that constitutes the search. <laughs> so the idea of the pathless path feels a bit like, well, that's the path. That's a path. Then you're you're being right. non-dual, like you're being dualistic in your non-dualism. Yes, you yes. Said that there is. Like, so talk to me about like, what does this look like to find God on the pathless path to seek God without a way and without a why? Well, for one thing, I don't claim to understand that beautiful thing that I quoted in my book, um, you know, (laughs) beautifully and clearly. And I do agree that the pathless path is also a path. (laughs) That's so good, Mike. (laughs) Boom. Well, this is some of the criticism Um, I get from some of my friends um, who are a bit more conservative Mm -hmm. on things like if we talk about non-dualism, they're like, well, you're being dualistic even by your definition of non-dualism. Yeah. So I'm going to answer it hopefully in a way that's helpful, but by using a, using a, one of my favorite passages of scripture, actually, because I think even thinking about anyone who might say, well, uh, might have that criticism that you just named. So in, in the New Testament, after Jesus dies and has risen again in the book of the Acts, Peter is <laughs> up on the roof praying or taking a nap or something, and, he, and, and we read, that he, he experiences a trance, which we don't know what that is, but then he sees a vision of a sheet coming down and there's all these air quotes, unclean animals that are in this things that he's not supposed to eat. And then he senses that he hears from God that he is supposed to eat it. He says, no. And then God says, don't, or in this trance, you know, whatever's true or not. But in the, in the biblical account, Peter is told by this vision by God, to not call unclean that which God has made clean. Now, in the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, it's super clear that those things are unclean. Mm -hmm. But then the conversation quickly goes to not just animals, but people. So Peter is invited to go to a a Gentile's house, not supposed to do, have eat with them, not supposed to do. And there he sees things that he's never even imagined before. These Gentiles, Holy Spirit is air quotes, falling on them. And he sees that a whole category that he's never even thought about of people who are now on the inside uh, are, is blowing his mind. So he comes back, he talks about it. And this starts a conversation in the council. So the brothers, James, John, whoever else are leading the charge have to have this, this serious debate about how, you know, what do we do with these Gentiles and what do we do with this vision that Peter has had? Cause we've never imagined this before. And specifically if Gentile believers come into the church, will we require them to be circumcised? That's the big question, you know, and it always yeah. falls to that, right? So the path for all generations up until right now is from Genesis 17. And it's super, the Bible clearly says, I'm using air quotes that circumcision shall be a sign of God's covenant with God's people for all generations. Now that means forever. That's what that means. So that's the path circumcision. Um, but they come to this point of paradox and they sit with it long enough. They study the scriptures. They talk to one another. They see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears. These Gentiles who are clearly, um, affected by God and who who really should be in. And so they make the decision. It seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit that these men not be required to be circumcised. And then they add like three or four things that they do need. Now they do need to refrain from eating, you know, like 
uh, lambs that have been strangled in their mother's milk or something. That's, that's yeah, just, which we know. don't even pay attention yeah. to anymore. No, right? no, no. Yeah. But so the path, I think in the first century, followers of Jesus encountered a situation where it was paradox. They didn't know what to do. And there was no clear guidance from the script, or there seemed to be clear guidance from the scriptures, but they went against it. Yeah. And I think that's the pathless path. And so, and for me, that's, you know, that, that passage is how I think the church in the 21st century and beyond needs to look at when we encounter things that we have not seen before in the church. I would put me personally, you know, same sex marriage and LGBTQIA inclusion where the Bible, where Jesus doesn't seem to speak about it in the Bible doesn't seem to be very clear at all. Now there are certain parts where it seems to be clear. I think we need to look at that acts 10 to 15 model as, as a model for the pathless path. Like instead of the path is, well, what does the Bible say? The pathless path to me is, what is a process the church can use where we won't know the eventual outcome, but if we use the process of what are we seeing uh, in people, what seems right to us and seems right to the spirit after conversation and then making a decision and moving forward into the future. That, that feels like to me, the pathless path because it's not mm. about, we There's can not a preset outcome, right? Yeah. So, so your church did just go through a process recently of, of several months, maybe a year of discernment around LGBTQ inclusion in the church. Do you mind talking a little bit about like, what did that process look like? How did you all engage in that? Like, what did that, yeah. How did that sort of play itself out? So one of the, thank you for asking that. I'd be happy to talk about that because I really feel good about the process we used and one of our one of the values that I write about in the book are the practices, but it's also a value for our church is conversation. And that is essentially we believe that God is big enough to where we can ask any question and sit with any question for as long as it takes. And we will be richer and better for it no matter where we mm-hmm. end up. And so instead of having it be just a conversation that like the elders have with each other, we put together a a committee of about eight people, a couple of elders, but five or six other folks just in the church of diverse theological convictions about inclusion. So folks that were already saying yes, uh, yay inclusion. And a a few people, at least two that were saying, nope, we do not believe the Bible permits that. And so that was important to us, but these, so for about nine months, this, this group was called the listening committee. And their job was to create environments where our congregation could have conversations together. Okay. So we, I mean, we did a couple, we did three sermons, you know, that sort of outlined some of the clobber verses and that Acts mm-hmm. 15 process for sure. I mean, we did some of that, but we did a lot of what we called listening circles and people gathered together in homes. And then as COVID started to emerge on, on zoom and other things where it was less about saying like it wasn't a debate. Let's bring in someone who was pro and someone who was against. Let's just let our folks ask questions together and hear those questions. And let's see. And our church is leans progressive for sure. So the big question is: Would our conservative folks feel feel courageous and safe enough to name their questions without feeling mm-hmm. like they were homophobic or? You know, yep. and that was, you know, I would say we had varying levels of success on that one. But the experiment was if we gather together in circles where we really lay out the point of this is to listen and learn together, uh, then we will end up further along, no matter where further along is. And toward the end of the process, one of the people on the listening committee um, transitioned, uh, came out as a transgender woman. And Hannah, her name is now Todd was uh, her name, but that process was really sacred because even uh, the the two people who remain conservative on LGBTQA inclusion and especially 
I think, confused about what it means to be transgender had such a beautiful response to Hannah. Mm. And um, one of the final things we did in the process was we had a congregational meeting and this is before COVID because I remember us all being together, but we just put that, that listening committee, those eight people around a table in the center of the room. And we had someone just moderate a conversation between them about what, how they, what they learn from each other and about some of the biases that they had to like see that they had, you know? So we, we ended up taking a member vote because we're a congregational governance and the members voted pretty over, well, overwhelmingly. It was like 90 to eight that, that we should. um, And, but this was our, our statement that we voted on was Genesis will allow your church. Genesis is our church. Yeah. Genesis will allow its pastors to perform same-sex weddings according to their conscience. And Genesis will hire qualified LGBTQIA plus members for any open staff positions. And that was trying to create a, a bit of a inclusive, a clear inclusive stance, but also a third way where, you know, there's no mandate. A, a pastor can still... Um, yep act according to their conscience and, but also any open staff position. Well, that includes senior pastor, you know, we didn't mm-hmm. explicitly say that, but then in, in that is, you know, so full participation and, but I don't know this Mike for a fact, but I think my, my presupposition is that out of those 90 people that voted, yes, I don't believe all 90 personally are, open and affirming, but I think they came to a place after the process that they realized this is good for, this seems good for our church to move. And I can, I can be at peace with it, even if I don't personally agree. And, and to me that felt positive. Now we still had people leave and still had people, you know, we still have people who are wrestling with it. So it's not like, and for any churches that are going through this or have recently gone through this, I'm learning. It's just a, it's just a series of like concentric circles of conversations. You don't, you don't ever finish this one. There's always, you know, there's more conversations to have and and more, there's so many layers to this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a good lead into another part of your book then that I had written down that I wanted to have you just sort of riff on a little bit. You wrote, I don't have to defend my rightness in order to hold a deep conviction. And anyway, being an asshole and being polite are not the only two options for how to have conversations. <laughs> that every time I've reread that line makes me giggle. Well, listen, right. It, it, I remember writing that line and I remember feeling like, Oh, that's a good, that's a good line, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for, thanks for I'm going to read out. you my favorite line yeah. in a minute, but oh, good, that, good, good. that's up there. So, but it, it 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 comes out of many conversations on Facebook and in person where, you know, uh, none of us enjoy being preached at or being misunderstood or maligned. And all of us would say, wait a minute, if can I just explain myself a little bit more or yeah. hey, you don't really understand what I'm saying. But so if that's true, if if the way we would hope to be treated is to be given some grace and a little more room to explain a little less judgment that you're just one of those people, quote unquote, then it makes sense that, that we would also, we, we should extend that (laughs) to people. But what I really also probably equally distasteful in my mouth is the belief that we all have to sort of end up in the same, on the same page we don't. Um, we yeah. can have rich, beautiful, robust dialogue with people who believe and think differently than us. Um, and we can end up disagreeing. But my, if I, if I don't have to defend my beliefs, then I can just, I can have their beliefs uh, help me solidify what I think and believe. They can expand what I think and believe. But if I'm in a defensive posture, nothing gets in and nothing gets out, you know, so 
like if you're defending what someone told me a long time ago, and this has always stuck with me. If you, if you're feeling defensive, a good mindful practice is to stop and just ask, what am I trying to defend? And why am I trying to defend it? You know, yes. what, what do I feel insecure? Do I feel threatened? Do I feel, and usually yes, yes, yes. Um, or, and there's sometimes good reasons. I mean, sometimes we feel defensive because someone's attacking, you know, and it's okay to even say, uh, I'd like a different question, please. Or, um, I don't, I'm not comfortable with where this conversation is going. I mean, that's all part of the, what, what, what we're talking about, but, um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think we, and even on Facebook and I've seen your posts and I, hopefully I model this too. We can even model on Facebook good, healthy discussions and disagreement and dialogue. We really can. We can also block trolls. You know, the, the, yep. the, those two things can really exist. And I think in order to have a good, healthy, safe dialogue, people even need to see that you're willing to to delete certain comments that are just mean-spirited. And, you know, that doesn't mean that person is terrible. It just means that, that the spirit of that comment uh, is not going to take us where we need to go. And, the, and and it's okay to steward your, your post or your wall that way. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, I don't remember if you talk about this in the book or not, but the reality is like, I think most people want to have those kinds of conversations or mm -hmm. would at least say that they want to be in those kinds of conversations but we often don't act and react in ways that create a safe context for those kinds of conversations. And it, it seems to me that um, doing a lot of the other practices or disciplines or habits or however you sort of define it um, helps set you up to be able to engage in those moments. Well, because if you are engaging in good other practices, you are, um, and you're practicing non-anxious presence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're able to be in those spaces without, um, without like, you're able to ask those questions about like, why am I feeling the need to defend this? What's mm -hmm. going on there? Um, it feels yeah. like I was just, um, I've been re-engaging in a centering prayer recently. And in that sort of practice where you're trying to like move to a place where you're like letting go of thoughts and thoughts come in and you're just sort of like gently removing them. And the way that I find myself engaging with other people after that sort of practice, um, I find myself so much more generous and patient and respond, like, as opposed to like, if I'm starting my day reading Twitter and the news and Facebook and like, and all of a sudden my mind is so full that I'm just super reactionary to everything. Um, yeah. Does that feel true? Mike, to you? you, you just explained that so well, the purpose of centering prayer <clears throat> is not to have some mystical experience in the moment. Maybe you will have that, but it's so that in your in the rest of your life, it's it's training. Centering prayer is training. I mean, you just said it. I'm just I'm just repeating what you just said. It's training. But you're repeating it better. It's good. <laughs> it's training yourself to take those anxious, attached thoughts that come in at all times, uh, and say, okay welcome, but you can just keep moving. You don't have to cloud my mind right now. When you do that in centering prayer enough, this meditation, centering prayer, it's the same thing. It Then you are able, you're more and more able to do that when you find yourself in conversations with people getting defensive. You're, 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 you're more able to recognize, oh, wait a minute, I'm having a anxious thought here. I'm feeling defensive. Even as you're talking, but if you're not doing that ever, then you're going to be very, um, you're going to be very limited in your ability to do that in the moment. This just happened to me a couple of days ago. I had a conversation where, oh goodness, I I just got defensive, and um, so, so this is another thing I want to say, and I I had to kind of process it through with some other people because my default was to just oh, apologize and stuff, and there are times to apologize, but. But there's also a time to say, no, wait a minute. I'm not going to respond perfectly to every situation. And if that's the goal, that I respond perfectly and non-attached and non-anxious to every, you know, then I'll never, I'll also never. So 
what is it that I was like before I apologize, what is it that I need to recognize? What was important to me that got touched? And maybe I didn't respond in the exact way that I was helpful or even maybe I need to do some repair, but let's not do the repair before you realize, hold on, I, there was something there that's important to me and I need to like make that okay, make space for that to be okay. And then I can go make the repair. But if I, if I immediately move to, Oh, I'm I'm so sorry. I, I was so defensive. Are you okay? Then. Uh, I think maybe the relationship, maybe it it is repaired, but you don't understand why you had that reaction because it probably wasn't a bad motive. You just got triggered, you know. So why did it get yeah. triggered? So does that make sense? Like we need yes. to we need to keep moving through this stuff, knowing that we're going to do it very imperfectly, and the point is not to respond perfectly, but the point is to more and more become aware of when our monkey mind is hijacking what we, who we really are, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This was actually one of, um, I think that your book actually really helped me with this sort of like shift of, um, contemplative, uh, spirituality, contemplative Christianity isn't as much about the, like, I I think I had been in circles where it was about the practices that you were doing. Mm-hmm. And so it almost start, it could start to feel like the goal is these practices, do these contemplative practices. And um, the story that you tell that, that bases the, uh, the title of your book, shining like the sun of um, shoot, I'm losing his name Thomas now, father Martin. Thomas Merton. Yeah. Thomas Merton. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the monk, Thomas Merton, he um, has this experience and maybe you could share that story a little bit. And that became this like, a really helpful reframing story of like, oh, this is this is the goal of contemplative spirituality. It's simply a means to this sort of end. It's simply a way of opening myself up to this other kind of experience that will be hard for me to be open to if I'm not engaging in these practices. Yes. Um, yeah. Contemplative practices are simply about changing what we see and how we see the world what we see in the world and how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see God, how we see the world. And I really do believe that much of just parenthetically, when I talk to evangelical Christians who say to me, and this happens literally, and I, I'm not exaggerating all the time, all the time, they'll say something like, I just, I can't pray anymore. I've lost my ability to pray. And, but it's because for a while, they would experience some transcendence. They would experience God's presence during prayer. But instead of recognizing that all of the saints and all of the people all across human history had that experience and they graduated from it to where they had to then move to experiencing God in a different way, not just by themselves. They had to learn how to experience God in the world and in nature and and this is not bad. You didn't lose your ability to pray. You just graduate it, you know? So contemplative practices are not primarily. Now, if you have a mystical moment, awesome. But, no, but the, 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 the story that I write about that you just referenced was Thomas Merton was in Louisville, Kentucky on the corner of fourth and Walnut. And suddenly he saw everybody as if in his words, they were shining like the sun that they were, they were just reflections of the divine and that every single person was connected to every single other person. And he said, basically, I have, I have no way of really explaining this other than they were all shining like the sun. And um, I believe, as you just pointed out, it was his work uh, with mindfulness and contemplation that allowed him to then see the world in that way, in a transcendent way, um, where for a moment, I think he saw things as they really are, you know, mm. and that's the goal uh, is seeing differently. Um, that's why Jesus talks so much about blindness and those who have sight. And that's why the story in John nine is so powerful about the one blind guy who actually sees yeah. and everyone else in the story yeah. is blind, you know? Even though they can see that's, that's paradox too. Oh, you know? uh, um, so good. So, 
that's like, and we have to learn to, to read it like that. Like it's not, we have to learn to read those stories and ask questions like, how am I the blind guy sometimes? And how am I the Pharisee sometimes? And how am I the mother and father who disown his child sometimes? And how am I Jesus sometimes? Yeah. That's in, in the contemplative practices of entering into scriptures like that, where there's no, and we're not looking for one answer. We're not even looking for an answer. We're looking to find ourselves in the story hmm. and then our, and who, whatever the outcome becomes for us, because it's, it's in process, right? We are currently learning how to see. And so we don't know how that's going to end up. And that's just for me so much more interesting, you know, than yes. looking at the Bible to tell us what to do or how to think or what happened or what didn't happen or what parameters to use for what theological beliefs and systems and all those things have their place. They really do. And I don't, and that's not a throwaway line. All those things have their place, but there comes a point in your journey where seeing your theological framework and the Bible as a fence, a fenced in yard with which to feel safe, where that is just no longer satisfying or helpful in seeing yourself God of the world. There is a place where it's necessary and helpful. And we have to have that for a time like children, but let's grow up too, you know? And so, um, yeah, let's, let's learn to see in more and more expansive ways. That's so good. And so much of that resonates so much. It's like, um, yeah, really moving to hear you talk about that. And it, um, I think one of the things it seems to me um, that's happening, and I'd be curious if you feel like that this is true also in in sort of the rise of people talking about deconstruction and that all happening, is not that that's a new thing. Like I almost feel like in some ways deconstruction can sometimes be a bit of a traumatic term for a thing that's a part of a normal growth process. Yeah, yeah. And that we can almost like by labeling it, with a really destructive term, it becomes this thing that is more destructive than yeah. maybe it needs to be. Yeah. But it seems to me that a part of why we're using that term is because the constructs of the church that many of us have grown up in and been a part of didn't allow space for that growth or yeah. didn't show people who had grown in that way or have pathways for that or, um, or talk about it at all. And so it feels like everything is blowing up as opposed to like, oh, no, this is actually a normal part of the expansive part of growing, just like you do in every part of your life. Yes. This is what happens. This is what you do. Yes. And that's why I, I like to use the term graduating. You know, I just graduated. Yeah. Like, because when you yes. graduate from something, you don't have to look back and say that was terrible or that was awful. Now, having said that, there are some truly awful religious systems that it's okay to say that that was truly awful and right, that was right, abusive. Right. And so I'm not saying that everything is good. Everything isn't good. But sometimes you just graduated from that way of thinking, from that religious group, from that religious system. And it's time. I, I, I put Beth Moore, our, our, our sweet, dear friend, amazing mm -hmm. friend, Beth Moore, Southern Baptist woman forever. And she finally has said, I've, I'm graduating from the Southern Baptist convention because mm -hmm. I, I just can no longer hide what I think and, and, and believe after years of probably code switching and playing by the rules, she, she graduated. Now, I mean, that's just one example, but also, yep. you know, when um, I, I like to, this is why I think it's important for us to, especially Mike, you and I who travel in these circles with lots of deconstruction and reconstruction, let's use the Bible to just to, to, make those points. The Bible is full of deconstruction and yes. reconstruction. Um, behold, I, God was in this place and I, I did not know it. You know, that's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. a deconstructive moment for, uh, was that Jacob now? My mind's blanking, but yeah, um, you tell the story in your book. Yeah. You know, I, mean, so I think it would be right. It'd be right there, but also <laughs> like Abraham and Isaac. So we, you know, we read the story, God invites Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and he almost does it, but then a, God provides a ram and all of that, you know, number one, did God really ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac or did that, or, or, or is that just what the biblical writers think that, you know, that God would have done? And I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's really possible that that's what the writers thought. 
but then as Greg Boyd and others say, like God in God's mercy and grace allows people to misunderstand God because yes. all we can do is understand God according to our culture and time. And so I think the Bible itself is a series of, of foundation, you know, and then breaking the foundation and making a refoundation, even in terms of what people reflect on what God does. Like when it's my opinion, Mike, and people can disagree with me on this and I am so fine with that. But like when, when we read in the Bible that God orders the genocide of people, like in the book of Joshua and others, it's my opinion that the only way to reconcile a good God that is Christ-like is to say that that's, that's what the biblical writers assumed God asked them to do. Just like the crusades later, just like slave owners, you know, Christian slave owners, they assume that God is saying this and ordering them to do this. And that's the, that is the, the best understanding that they have of God, but it doesn't mean that that is actually what necessarily that that's actually what God ordered or what God did or what God said. But as we move through the revelation, as we see that God is Christ-like, um, you know, later on, then, so even that the Bible itself is a, is a series of construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. If you look at it that way. Ah, that's so good. Now, um, I've yeah. got no no good way to transition into this, but I wanted to read you my favorite line from the book and um, and just hear you like maybe talk a little bit about it. You said Grace is a hard girl to like when she's pretend when she's spending all her time kissing someone else. Grace is a hard girl to like when she's spending all her time kissing someone else. Yeah, it's so good, dude. Thank you. I, I do love writing and I, so it's fun to stumble across a line that works. And, and I wrote that, uh, I wrote that as if it would have, as if we got into the journal entry of the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son. So yeah, yeah we see him as such a bastard. What a prick. Oh my gosh. He's so, but, but if we really look, you know, when he says, oh, dad, you, you never even so much as, as sacrificed a goat on my behalf. You know, you, you, I felt compassion for him. Hmm. I felt like, what is it like when you're dying for some, some grace, but you're also a harder person to love probably. And I say that a bit in air quotes, but, you know, we all know folks who their faults are a little bit more uh, visible or, you know, and I, that's how I see this person. And what, what would it be like to see your brother who you probably feel all kinds of feelings about get such get lavished on in such an undeserving way. Um, I think we have treated this elder brother with much more contempt than he deserves because hmm. it would have been so difficult to live. It, I mean, this is a parable, so it, it didn't happen and it always happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it didn't I like happen lot. and it always happens, but we, you know, we, we like to talk about grace, but it's actually really hard to see someone else experience hmm. lavish grace when we feel like there's someone just took the last slice of pizza and we're hungry. Yeah. Uh, so good. So good. Steve, um, so your latest book is Shining Like the Sun. Everybody should get it. Find it at your local bookstore. Find it on Amazon. Um, where else can people track with you? Where can they find you? My website is steveweens.com and you can find links to my podcast. I do a podcast called this good word. Uh, and, um, I've been doing it for a long time. So there's a lot of, there's yeah, a lot of, there's a ton, a lot of folks that, uh, so I'd sometimes just riff and I do a little mini homilies or whatever you want to call it. And sometimes I interview good people. Um, 
And um, so stevings.com, you can find links to my podcast, links to my my three books, um, and you can get in touch with me if you want to. Um, so I do some coaching of folks here and there, you know, who are either trying to write a book or trying to pastor or trying to deconstruct and reconstruct. So you can get in touch with me that way. Yeah. Love it. And Weens is W-I-E-N-S. Right. So don't right. find the other guy. We're not, <laughs> we're not trying to patronize him. Um, <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. It's really, really kind and generous to give your time today to, you know, get me off your back. So I appreciate, I really do appreciate it. Mike, this was one of the most, I loved this conversation. You know, it's rare to be asked such delightful, expansive questions that, allow me to reflect on what it is that I actually think and believe. So uh, I think we are best friends now. I mean, I think we, I think we, I think we have eclipsed that, you know, now we just need to find ourselves in the same physical space. Yeah. Sometime this year. We're going to get matching tattoos. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, man. This was so fun. Thank you. I appreciate it.